Hey, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee, soaking up the beautiful January winter sunshine. And right as I was getting to start, the riverboat behind me let off its steam whistle. And I didn't quite expect that, but I'm getting my composure back. And I'm here to talk to you about a very important topic, a topic that I've hinted at in several other episodes, specifically talking about the out of Africa theory of human ancestry of human history. Now, I don't have a definite answer on a lot of these things, but I want to talk about one more aspect that challenges the entire notion. Now, if you go back to my older episodes, uh, there is no Y chromosome clock, or did we evolve from 10,000 people in Africa, or was Africa the cradle of humanity, or did Eve live in Southern Africa, or modern humans from Adam and Eve? You bet. And then my other episode in a tangential area, patriarchal drive. I've been beating around the bush for years now on this out of Africa theory. Now I haven't been able to answer every single aspect because it's a huge, huge puzzle, but one at a time, we can knock down the dominoes. And here's one more domino that I want to knock over. And it's the idea that recombination rates are the same in all populations. And what's recombination? That's something that happens in all sexually reproducing organisms, from single-celled protists to multicellular allergy to allergy, algae, all the way up to bald eagles and bald people. Sexual reproduction involves the shuffling of genes from one generation to the next. So you inherited DNA from your mother and your father. When you go to have a child, your mother and father's chromosomes are going to line up and pieces of the chromosomes are going to switch position, and then they're going to be given to your child. So your children will get scrambled versions of the chromosomes that existed in your parents from you, and scrambled versions of the chromosomes that existed in your spouse's parents from your spouse. This shuffling of genes every generation is a brilliant design mechanism. It increases the diversity in populations, because if we only inherited the entire chromosome, well, you got a choice of one or two chromosomes from your grandparents that you're gonna get. And if you don't get one and you get the other, well, that other one is lost. So whatever diversity there is lost also. By scrambling the diversity over time, the diversity of the whole population is maintained much more effectively. Also, the um, ability to recombine genes means that bad gene combinations will be broken up and good gene combinations will be brought together. Now true, the good gene combinations can also be broken up, but in the long term, the net result is a positive benefit of bringing together beneficial gene combinations, which theoretically, supposedly, according to a lot of experiments, actually benefits populations as a whole. So while the reproductive cells are developing in sexually reproducing organisms, at one point in time, the chromosomes line up, they shuffle around, and then they get pulled apart. There are a number of very important genes that control recombination. It's not random, it doesn't happen by accident, it's actually directed and targeted. One of the most important is called PRDM9. It makes a protein, that protein sticks onto the DNA, in fact, it sticks into the groove of the DNA, and it is a collection site for the apparatus that's gonna cut the DNA, bring it over to the other side, cut the other chromosome, and swap them around. It's a very complicated system, it's very elegant, it's very beautiful, we're still working out some of the mechanics of it, but it's amazing the more we learn how complicated this system actually is. One of my skeptics who comments on a lot of my videos and my articles uh, said, 
in, in one of his articles, a PRDM9 has nothing to do with recombination. Or That's a light quote. That's not true. It's strongly associated with recombination. It might not actually be the recombination engine, but the sites that it targets are hotspots for recombination. And interestingly, recombination tends to destroy those hotspots. So PRDM9 is sort of like working against itself by making genetics shuffle around. It's actually slowing down the rate of shuffling, possibly. There's a lot of theoretical work happening here, and it's just a lot of very interesting science going on as far as recombination is concerned. But the reason I'm talking about this is because this is a very important concept for the out of Africa theory. When you look at Africans, they have obviously a lot more shuffling in their genomes. You look at non-Africans, they tend to inherit very large pieces of DNA that are common amongst many different people. So you might share something with someone you're not closely related to you because that piece has not been recombined since early history in whatever population you're in. So PRDM9 attaches to a 17 base pair motif, and we know what that is, we know where it is, and we know that, for example, Europeans have fewer of those motifs than Africans. Now, that was first learned in a 2011 paper by Hinch et al. called the, the Landscape of Recombination in African Americans. And what they showed was that people of West African descent have about 2,500 extra PRDM9 targeting sites, and those typically are um, recombination hotspots, 2,500 more sites than Europeans do. Well, that would mean that we would expect African genomes to recombine more than European genomes. If that's true, the amount of shuffling in Africa over time will be more. Therefore, the African genome should be shuffled more. Just because it's shuffled more doesn't necessarily mean it's older. But if the recombination rates were the same in two populations, and if one population did come out of another as a small group that left a larger population, it would have less recombination blocks. It would have more uh, inbreeding over time. There would be more shared uh, ancestry amongst all the peoples in that small population. If that population had expanded, you might have something that looks like the non-African population. But if the recombination rates aren't the same, you can't make that estimation. Now, the evolutionists will tell us that not only do Africans have shorter recombination blocks and obviously more scrambling because they suppose they're older, but the people outside of Africa have a subset of the African blocks, which would be an indication that the population that came out of Africa or which would be an indication that the rest of the world's population did derive from Africa from a small population group. Now, I have learned from experience that anytime something like that is said by the evolutionary establishment, that is an area to explore. I don't know the answer to that yet, but I suspect that when we actually look at the nuts and bolts of the situation, that it's not gonna be nearly as clear cut as the pronouncements that were made 10, 15 years ago. It's time to reanalyze re that and hey, if you are a, a young scientist and you want to make a mark, maybe that would be an area for you to explore because there might be some low-hanging fruit there that might be able to be plucked off the tree rather easily. A lot of evolutionary theory and, and powerfully over years had just made generic statements that later on turn out to not be true. So there's one for you to go research. But if the recombination rates aren't the same amongst 
Africa versus the rest of the world, then out of Africa is going to have some explaining to do. We know that recombination rates are not the same amongst different created kinds. Now, you evolutionists, what do I mean by that? I mean very dissimilar species that don't have recent common ancestry in our model, but for us, they're separate creations. We know that recombination rates are not the same in species that have a recent common ancestor. For us, that would be a created kind. For you evolutionists, a recent common ancestor. We know that recombination rates are not consistent within species, between uh, different populations of the same species, between the sexes, within individuals over time, or even across the genome. With that much variability in recombination rates, what if Africa simply has had more? for whatever reason, any number of possible reasons, but that is an unexplored, or, unexplored area of science. And if any of that is even remotely true, we can directly attack this out of Africa scenario. And interestingly, humans and chimpanzees have virtually no shared recombination hotspots. I've been exploring this concept for several years. Uh, way back, oh boy, in the early 2000s, after the Human Genome Project was finished, one of the first big studies was done was called the HapMap Project. They're looking at the haplotypes, haplotype. You are diploid. You have two copies of each chromosome. Your reproductive cells are haploid. That's H-A-P-L. It's a Greek root word meaning single or one. You have a single copy of your genome or single copy of each chromosome. So a chromosome is a haplotype. A group of letters or a group of people that share similar haplotypes are called haplogroups. Like my Y chromosome haplogroup is the, the men that share my Y chromosome. I have a mitochondrial haplogroup. And we can say that because you only have one Y chromosome. It's by definition a haplotype. We only have one mitochondria. By definition, you have a haplotype. But for the rest of the genome, when you have paired chromosomes, a haplotype is, or a hap block, is just a section of a chromosome that's been inherited from an ancestor, but you might have different blocks on your two paired chromosomes. The HapMap project was looking at the haplotype diversity amongst people across the world. They took different populations around the world and took a bunch of people and they looked at them and studied them. And then they, they assessed like every 1,000 to 2,000th letter in the genome. So they didn't sequence the whole genome. They skipped over like 99% of the genome because most of that is invariant from one person to the next. I mean, why sequence all that? There's not much there. They looked at the variable positions and then I took that data and I started making maps. And what I did was I took the, um, so you people watching on video, you're gonna see pictures, people listening on the podcast. You have to imagine that I took the data and I replaced the ACs, Gs, and Ts with colored dots. So green, blue, black, and red for the, the four, four letters in the genome, ACGT, because it's really hard to see letters, but we're really good at picking up patterns when we see arrays of dots. And I took each individual and I put them in a, in a row, in fact, two rows, because each individual has two chromosomes, and so there's two rows for each individual, and I line them up, and each column in this image that I'm showing is a letter in the genome. And if I showed you, say, the results from the European population in the HAP map, you would see a whole bunch of columns of similar colors, but then in the rows, every once in a while, spread out amongst these people, there's a, a bar, a horizontal bar. That's a, an obvious piece of DNA, a chunk of DNA that individuals share because they have a common ancestor. Even if they might have 
the same grandparent or great-grandparent or even great-great-grandparent, they inherited through just dumb luck a giant piece of DNA from the same distant ancestor. And we see a lot of those in the European population, meaning Europe came from a small population, a small inbred population that expanded to take over continent. Okay, but if I showed the same picture from Africa, you would not see any horizontal bars. You would see a lot of little teeny pieces. I mean, myriads of, and, and, uh, of little sections of DNA shared amongst the people. There's not really a, a nice pattern to it because it's so incredibly scrambled. Okay, is Africa older or do they have more scrambling? That's the question. By the way, these images that I'm showing from the hat map are from chromosome 15. They cover the SLC2 gene, which is one of the main drivers of skin color in Europeans. And there is a column of letters in the Europeans that are completely invariant and that covers that gene. In Africans, they don't have that. There's a lot more diversity of the skin color genes in Africans than in Europeans. Well, some of those people in the HAP map were also included in the Thousand Genomes Project. In fact, in the Mexican population, of the HapMap and in Thousand Genomes, they discovered that there were some people who were related and they didn't realize it. In fact, there was two pairs of siblings and the siblings were at different levels in these two parent child trios. So they, they, they looked at the genomes of two parents and a child, but that child was also the brother or the sister in one case of another person who was a parent in a two-parent child trio. So we have three generations. We have two grandparents, two siblings, and one grandchild. There was another one where there was two grandparents, two sisters, and the second sister was a mother in another family. So we have two different three-generation families in the Thousand Genomes Project. And when you have information like that, you can trace the letters that people are carrying from the grandparents to the parents to the children, the grandchildren. And you can even tell from which grandparent each section of the genome of the grandchild was inherited. There's four grandparents and the children only inherit a scrambled version of those four grandparents and you can track them and it's fascinating. And I calculated uh, about 40 recombinations per generation from that data. But then something else happened. A company called Complete Genomics released a data set of a family from Utah called the CEPH panel. And it was 11, 12, 17 people, four grandparents, two parents, and 11 grandchildren. I think it was uh, five girls and six boys. And they sequenced them to a very high quality. The Thousand Genomes Project, which I mentioned before, was not done to a high quality. So you cannot assess things like mutation rate from the data because there's too many errors in the data. But they said this is the platinum standard of genomics. Yeah, it wasn't quite platinum standard. There were still a lot of errors in it to the point where I could still not assess the mutation rate from one generation to the next because there's too many errors in the data. It was about the same as my expected mutation rate. From that data, I was able to estimate a recombination rate of about 62 recombinations per generation. You have 23 chromosomes, times two. Some of the chromosomes don't have a long arm. Some of them are uh, acrocentric and some are pericentric. So some of them have a, a little stubby thing in a centromere and a long arm, but some of them have two long arms. But it works out to be about one recombination per long arm per generation on average. And that's typical things we already knew, but I was, it's about 62 re, uh, recombinations per generation. But I was also looking for something called gene conversion. 
This is when a single letter or if a small, maybe a small block of letters is copied from one parental chromosome to the other. It's not a recombination which involves long pieces of DNA, it's teeny little pieces. And I wanted to know if I could assess rates of gene conversion. Well, not really. I, I could definitely see it and I know it's happening, but I can't always tell if it's a gene conversion event or if it's an accident. There's a lot of errors in this data. The errors are caused by gene sequencing errors. The errors are caused by mutations that happened in the culture of the cells that were growing the chromosomes because they, they make these things in bacterial artificial chromosomes. They actually grow the human chromosomes in bacteria and then harvest the DNA and sequence it. That way they can get a lot of copies of it and they can make more later on if someone else wants to do another experiment on these uh, chromosomes. So they're using bacterial artificial chromosomes, which is inducing mutation in culture. And they're, they're harvesting it from adult cells, which means that the somatic body tissues might have extra mutations compared to the reproductive cells. I was looking for gene conversion. And after filtering out a lot of noise, I estimated there's at least 21 gene conversion events per individual per generation. I think it's much higher than that, but those are just the ones I could see. Because in order to see it, I needed the, the parents to have heterozygosity. I needed an A in one spot and a G in another, a C in one spot and a T in another, so I could see if that C and T was switched between the two parental chromosomes when the child inherited it. So even though we have all this modern, high-tech, supposedly high-quality uh, DNA and, and genomes from all these people around the world, we still can't assess mutation rate and we still can't assess uh, gene conversion rate. So I still don't know how long it would take to make a mitochondrial leave or Y chromosome atom or how long it would take to scramble a genome if there's high rates of gene conversion because we simply don't know yet. So perhaps it was a little premature to conclude we came out of Africa when there's so many unknowns in the data. I was also able to show that there's a continuum between crossing over and gene conversion. The pieces of DNA that the children inherit are pretty big most of them, but then there's some of them are smaller, some are smaller, some are smaller, and there's like an exponential decay towards very, very, very small pieces down to one single letter or uh, a single letter that I could assess, which is you know surrounded by maybe a thousand letters of invariant DNA. So I know that at least one letter and perhaps up to maybe a thousand letters will swap between two chromosomes, but there's a continuum. People have suggested that recombination is actually an incomplete gene conversion. That gene conversion is extremely common and recombination is much less common. So as the chromosomes are lining up, most of the time there's two crossover events in close proximity to one another. So you only have a little piece of DNA flip from one chromosome to the other. And when the chromosomes separate, you have a gene conversion. If that second crossover event is not yet completed when the, when the chromosomes pull apart, that's when you get a recombination. Interesting. Now, looking at the children in a 17-member family, I can see which letters are passed from the grandparents to the parents to the children. I can tell which letters the father's father, the father's mother, the mother's father, the mother's mother passed to all the children. So I'm able to actually track the letters from the grandparents 
to the parents to the grandchildren and make maps of recombination in the grandchildren. And I know what letter was inherited from the grandfather or the grandmother, the other grandfather, the other grandmother. I can tell which chromosome came from the father, which chromosome came from the mother. And when I do that, here's one particular map. By the way, if you're watching on on video, you're going to see this. If you're listening on the podcast, go to biblicalgenetics.com, look up the show notes for this episode, and I'll have these images loaded there. But in this image, I'm showing blue versus red versus green. Now, the green is a centromere. I just It's just a, 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 a spacer region I put in the middle of the map. Blue is letters that came from the paternal grandmother. Red are letters that came from the paternal grandfather. And I can see in the first long arm of chromosome one, there were two recombination events and in different places. And so we have grandpa, grandma, grandpa. And in the lower arm, the, the Q arm, the second arm, there was no recombination at all. But I also see a lot of inconsistent letters, letters that are in the sections they got, the kid got from grandpa, but that's grandma's letter because grandpa did not have that letter. It only could be in grandma. In fact, in the other grandparents, it wasn't there either, but it was in grandma. So is that a mutation that happened? Is that a gene conversion? Is that a sequencing error that occurred in two different individuals? I'm not certain. Some of these are definitely gene conversion events. Some of them aren't. We gotta wait and actually to, to actually find this out. And by the way, this data is now behind a paywall. Uh, they first released this publicly. So I grabbed the publicly available data and started working with it. And then they they locked it down behind a paywall. I think they they cleaned up the data a lot or they did something, maybe there's a privacy concern, I'm not sure. So I'm not gonna show you much because I don't wanna get myself into trouble, but this is from the stuff that they actually released to the public at one point in time. So looking at these recombination maps, I can map all the chromosomes of all the children from the mother and from the father. And in one particular child, one of the sons, he had literally 10 times more recombination than any of his siblings, but he didn't have a higher error rate he didn't have a higher gene conversion rate. I didn't think there's any, any more mutations in this individual than his siblings. In fact, he was lower on the spectrum for some of those measures. I think that this really is 10 times more recombination and a lot of little recombinations also, which is going towards the gene conversion end. Wait a second, what triggered that? Why did that child, if that data is real, why did that child have so much recombination and his siblings didn't? Did the mother get sick during pregnancy? Was she, was she overly hot? Was she cold? Was she starving? I don't know, but something happened in that individual to cause very strange data. And that gets us into another area in the area of we can modify recombination rates in organisms. We, we can see in fruit flies, different strains of fruit flies grown at different temperatures have different rates of recombination. We can see it in plants in the famous Arabidopsis uh, lab, lab rat. It's a, it's a lab rat in the plant world. Arabidopsis is super important for lots of genetic studies. And they notice that high, that plants grown at higher temperatures have higher recombination rates. We can see in closely related breeds of pigs, things that are very similar. They, they, these researchers discovered five genes that were important for controlling recombination, but they found out that the recombination rates were different in two very similar breeds. And females had higher recombination rates than males. But in mice recently was discovered that males have higher recombination rates than females. I don't know why, but these, this is very interesting because we're getting into genetic systems now. This is not fruit flies. This is not plants. 
These are animals that have a lot of commonality with humans, and we can see differences in their recombination rates between the sexes and between closer related breeds. Interesting. So now that we see all that complexity associated with recombination, recombination rate differences between species, within species, among populations, between the sexes, uh, between individuals at different environmental conditions, we, we can see all this diversity. Why would anyone assume that recombination rates are the same between Africans and the rest of the world? In fact, there's some data, I know it's more than 10 years old now, but the 2011 data showed us that there's more recombination amongst Africans and amongst Europeans, the, the comparative group. So everything's pointing toward non-constant rates. If any of that is true, even a little bit, if any one of these areas of exploration is true, the out of Africa theory is gonna to have to be recalculated. And I do believe there's just been more recombination in Africans over the same amount of time. This also has to do with whether or not the African population in early times was split up into subpopulations that were different, and there's some indication that that was true. And if they merged later on, they would have brought a lot of different gender diversity together that would have been scrambled. Gene, gene conversion also has a GC bias. It favors Gs and Cs over As and Ts. So there's a drive in one direction as we're looking at these things. And we can see that in the data as well. My friends, don't be daunted. This is just one more thing that one more advance against this bastion of evolution that's challenging the faith of so many people. And point after point and way after way, issue after issue, we have been making inroads. There's so much more to explore. We're actually, this creationist community is a small community. There's not many of us, and genetics is even smaller than the creationist community at large. So if you're interested in science and you like DNA and history and technology, or even computer programming, because it's a very computer programming intense field, get into this. There are some low-hanging fruits that you can find and you can just pluck them off that evolutionary tree and say, hey, Mr. Evolutions, thanks a lot. This is ours, this tastes really good, by the way. You can go play with something else. And I think this out of Africa theory is one of them. But we have a lot of work to do. We have to incorporate Neanderthals and Denisovans and we have to explain uh, native Australians, and we have to explain um, some splinter groups that appear in Africa, at least the genetics of these people, looks like they might've interbred with a Neanderthal-like splinter group in ancient times, and that this, this ghost genome of this archaic population is in little bits and pieces amongst Africans. There's a lot of very interesting things here. But the big picture of Noah and his family coming off of Noah's Ark and that little population giving rise to the rest of the world's population through a dramatic spreading out event is the big picture that we're working with. And that picture, there's so many things about it that, that reflect genetic reality. And we have this, this mass migration of people across the world with, with only one Y chromosome lineage and one mitochondrial lineage and small people groups moving into previously uninhabited territory through the Middle East. I mean, I've said this before, all of that harks and references the Tower of Babel account in the Bible. But then we have the out of Africa story, which has to still be explained. I think we can do it. I just gave you one more piece of evidence pointing that direction. I'm gonna close with a verse. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the second half of verse 58. Christians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So my labor is to make biblical genetics episodes for you, 
Thank you for watching. For those of you supporting, thank you so much. I picked up two new Patreon subscribers after my last episode, and I appreciate it very much. But this is a labor of love. This is a lot of work. I'm not a very good filmographer. I'm not a very good speaker. I'm constantly stumbling over my own words, but I'm out here doing this anyway because I want you to be encouraged. The Bible is true, and as science supports the Bible.